All right. Hey, church. Uh, good morning for two more seconds. It's officially the afternoon. Hey, so glad you guys are here today. And I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Coming back to Albuquerque is a really special thing for me. I got up here the 830 service and was just weirdly emotional. I don't know what happened to me. I'm keeping it together now. That's good. And, uh, but man, I love coming back to Albuquerque. I love being home. I've not been here for 11 months. And I think that's the longest stretch I've ever gone uh, without green chili. And it was really um, just difficult. And I miss that maybe as much as my family. Um, it's funny, when I was in the airport, the first thing I did, I hadn't even left the Sunport, and I called Dion's, and I ordered a Duke City pizza for pickup. And uh, I just felt God. I felt his presence. And I've already had a Blake's burrito. I've already been to Sawmill, had a green chili cheeseburger. It's been real. Uh, you guys know. And uh, if you're newer to Citizen Church over the last couple of years, um, you may have very little to no context for who I am, you know? So the whole time you're watching these videos, you're like, who is this guy? And you're elbowing your neighbor, like, does he even go here? And uh, I don't, but I did for a really long time. I was here on, uh, when I was three days old, was my first day as a part of this church. And I was here until I was 31 years old, and then we moved in the very beginning of last year, the very beginning of 2021. And so in so many ways, Albuquerque's still home. I left the airport, I hopped in the car and started driving, and you just kicked back into autopilot. It feels like you never left. And uh, so I love this city so much. I love this church so much. You guys are still family, I think, in so many ways. And um, you know, one of the things I wanted just to say, I wanted to give a little bit of honor real quick um, to both my dad and my mom, Dustin and Mandy. And you know, my dad has been in this city now for 40 plus years. They made plans when they were young to be here for one year, and God was like, I got some different plans for you. And 40 plus years later, they're still here working in this church, helping to lead in so many various ways. And I know that everything that this church is doing now, it's been built on an incredible foundation. It's standing on very tall shoulders. And my dad is one of the best, most faithful, godly men that I've ever met. And just wanted to thank uh, my dad and my mom. They're incredible. And Dustin, um, in 2020, the church was transitioned to Dustin's leadership the very end of January 2020, and my poor brother, he got six good weeks in, and then this thing called COVID showed up. I don't know if you've heard of it. And uh, COVID came about, and uh, it kind of threatened to derail everything that they had been dreaming and planning for years. You know, what was so amazing is I watched my brother and his wife lead with such stability and wisdom and integrity, and when a lot of churches faltered, and a lot of pastors got caught up in a lot of the crazy political nonsense and, and decided to you know, choose sides. I watched a church that said, we're not choosing sides, we're choosing the word of God. And I believe that it's through that faithfulness that this church is now, out of COVID, the healthiest and the best and I, that it's ever been. I think this church is thriving and the best is still ahead. And so I think you guys have great things in store here at Citizen Church. And I uh, just love seeing all of you here. And I love that my guy Zach has a Union City shirt on right now. I just saw it. I can spot that from a mile, man. Um, hey, but it's, uh, it's just, again, such a privilege to be here. And it was funny when my brother called me months ago to uh, ask me to preach. He said, hey, November 6th, would you want to preach? So I checked with uh, my wife, and uh, she, like, is my calendar. And um, she was like, yes, but you have to take one of the kids with you. So I brought Archie with me. I have a photo of him from Halloween, which is just, that's amazing. Like, he became Jack-Jack. It was... Uh, very real. He had to wear that for the three days after, too. Um, but he came with me on this trip. He's hanging with my in-laws. But the funniest thing is when Dustin said, hey, I want you to preach, I said, okay, I'll be there. And then he followed that up by saying, by the way, 
none of us are gonna be in town, we're all leaving the country. And I was like, wow, thank you, that's really kind <laughs> to do that. And uh, it's been, been weird, I'm like staying in my parents' house alone, and, uh, but oddly it's been kinda nice, because I have forgotten what silence sounds like. I have three little kids, and so this week I've been reminded of the sound of silence. And uh, I'm like, I can't go back now, I just can't go back. Okay, anyway, September of 2020, I stood right here on this stage, and believe it or not, that was 111 Sundays ago, and I stood here and I got to talk about the vision that God had given to me and my wife of planting a brand new church in the heart of Washington, D.C., and got to cast this vision and share with the church and show a video about you know, what we were dreaming and what we were believing God was gonna do. When I was finished preaching, my brother uh, came up on stage and in a very open-handed manner, I'll never forget this, he looked at our church congregation and he said, hey, I want you guys to do a few things. So number one, would you guys pray for Brandon and Delaney and would you guys encourage them on a regular basis? And I know that many of you guys have been praying for us and many of you have been some of the greatest voices of encouragement in our life over the last couple of years. And I would invite you, um, I need more encouragement, I'll just be honest with you. This has been one of the hardest things I've ever done and there's been so much joy but it's got so many challenges. And so we'll take any encouragement we can get. I'm a sucker for it. And if, whatever you wanna say, I'll take it. Um, and uh, so he said, pray for them, encourage them. Second thing he said was, would you consider partnering with them financially? And our church here jumped on board with that. And so Citizen Church in 2020, like it does every year, it ended the year with its annual giving campaign called Heart for the House. And there was two large initiatives and Union City Church was one of the initiatives at the, end of two, uh, at the end of 2020. And so this church came together and people gave and they sacrificed tremendously and were able to help launch Union City in strength so that when we moved out, our number one thought was not, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do for finances? But we had a church here in Albuquerque that was already supporting us and already backing us. And that has been one of the greatest miracles that I can even express to you guys. I can't even express my gratitude for what that's meant to us as you guys have helped us to start and really sustain through the first year. And then the third thing my brother said was, hey, also, what if you thought about, prayed about going with them to DC? And I remember even as he said it, I was thinking like, okay, yeah, right. Like there might be three or four young adults that are like, I got nothing better to do. I might as well, you know, just like move to DC, you know, it's will be fun. And I was so surprised by over the course of the next couple months that a team of 33 people from this church came together, and people who were uprooting their lives, one of the families had five kids, and they called me, they're like, would you want us to join? I was like, you're gonna grow our church by seven just by showing up. <laughs> of course I want you there. And anyway, they were really a pillar family here, and they become a pillar in our church as well. And, um, and so people uprooting their lives, selling their homes, moving to DC with, without ever even having been there, like not even been to the East Coast. And I was like sitting down with them, asking, are you sure that you wanna do this? Like, you've never been there before. And I told this team, I was like, guys, there is a fine line between faith and stupid, and some of you are flirting with that line right now. And so this doesn't go well, I cannot take responsibility. But God has been so faithful to our team, and people have found jobs, and they found homes, and what started as a really crazy first couple months out there, um, God has just shown how good he is, and how faithful he is. That's kinda of been my word for the whole last year, has just been faithfulness and knowing more and more the faithfulness of God. And uh, so anyway, I just, again, I'm so glad to be here. And what I, what I told my brother with him not being here was that um, that's fine, but I'm gonna take over the church while you're gone. And so I've changed out the locks in his office and uh, been rearranging 
buying some new furniture. It's looking great in there. And uh, so here to stay. It's gonna be great. But, uh, and I just, the last thing I wanna do is I just wanted to report back to you guys because what we celebrate in D.C., I want you guys to feel like you can celebrate because you're a part of it. And our victories are your victories because we don't exist without this church. And uh, man, I just wanna say this, that God is on the move in the nation's capital. And there are people that have been so far from God that are coming to faith in Jesus. We've been baptizing people. And we've been in a season of just tremendous growth, both numerically and spiritually. Um, our big focus on the next year in 2023 is spiritual formation, where we are gonna be working and doing everything we can to disciple and form people into the image of Christ. And so we're excited for what's coming. And uh, just in September, we celebrated one year as a church. And then the very next Sunday, we launched into two services on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. And it's just been incredible to see what God is doing. He's been bringing more growth. And uh, so we're just feeling like we're in a fun season, uh, full of so much joy. And our church is very young. I was telling somebody earlier, I feel like I'm back in when I was uh, running the young adults ministry here. That's what our church feels like on Sundays. And I think the average age is about 27. And so we live in the second youngest city in the country, though, so it kind of makes sense. But I am praying, if you want to pray alongside me, we are praying for more gray hair in our church. And we need them to show up. And it's funny, God has a sense of humor. I was praying for gray hair, and then he started giving me gray hair. So you got to pray with clarity. I said, God, I need other people that have gray hair, that are older. That would be great to bring them in and to help our church just in so many ways. Uh, but I love what God is doing. So anyway, let's, let's jump in uh, here today. And I say this with all, the, like, all truth. My brother, I was talking to him last night on the phone, and he said, Brandon, uh, he's kind of giving me the layout of all three services, and he said, 11.30 is my favorite service to preach to. And I kid you not, God is my witness. He said, these people are rowdy. So I don't know. We'll see if it's true. Romans 12, there's a passage of scripture called the marks of a true believer. And this is a passage I read, I read a long, long time ago, but about 10 years ago, it really struck me in particular. And I remember reading it and just having this moment, reading through this passage, thinking, man, this is incredible. What if believers could take these words and really begin to apply this to their life, that this is what it looks like to be marked as a follower of Jesus and marked by the spirit of God. We actually did a series at our young, adult, young adults ministry called Marked. And even at Union City, the very first sermon series we did right out of the gate after our launch Sunday last year was a series on this section of scripture. It means that much to me. And so today I wanna talk about what it looks like to be marked. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus that actually looks like Jesus? What a crazy and novel idea, right? Because right now, I think we're living in a, in a day and an age where we can no longer afford to be Christians who don't look anything like Christ. I don't know if you're sensing the cultural moment that we're in, in our society and in our world, but right now, maybe more than ever, we need Christians to live lives that are distinctly different from the rest of the world. We've gotta look different. We've gotta stand out and stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world. No longer can we be Christians in name only. See, the word Christian literally means Christ-like, but there are a lot of Christians who look nothing like Christ. So the question for you today as I preach this message, and I don't want you thinking about your neighbor, I want you thinking about you. I want the Holy Spirit to open, your, open yourself up right now to the Holy Spirit, just to say, Holy Spirit, convict me through this word. Tell me what you need to tell me and teach me what you need to teach me. But here's Romans chapter 12, starting in verse nine. I'm gonna read the whole passage and then just focus on a really small portion of this. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. 
Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. What a crazy idea, right? It just seems like that's impossible. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I love this passage of scripture. And to be honest, I wanna preach 100 messages about this right now, but uh, in prepping for this, I had to really hone in on one particular area. And I wanna look at nine words in verse nine, simply this, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Uh, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a house that for whatever reason, we were not allowed to say the word hate. Uh, did anybody grow up like this? Like you couldn't say hate in your home? Like there's a few of us, we had the same parents. And um, I don't remember, I don't know why this was. I remember being a little kid, I was riding in the back of the car and don't even remember the full scenario. I just know I said I hate and it wasn't even directed at a person. It was directed at a thing. I said, I hate this thing. And my dad turned around and he looked at me with those dad eyes right into my eyes and he said, Brandon, we do not say hate in this family. And that carried on for the rest of my time growing up in that house, like middle school, high school. I'd be saying, dad, I hate football practice. And he, I was like an 18 year old, like Brandon, we do not say hate in this house. I always roll my eyes. Like I don't, I don't understand the rule, right? I don't like rules to begin with and especially if I don't understand them. And so I'm like, I don't get it. Now as, as fate would have it, um, I'm a dad now and I have kids. And I remember just about a year and a half ago, I was driving in the car, and my son Carson, who's now four years old, he was about two years old at the time, he's sitting behind me, and he says, Dad, where are we going? I said, hey, buddy, we gotta go to the grocery store, and then we'll head home. And he just starts losing his mind. I'm like, dude, what is wrong? And he goes, Dad, I hate the grocery store. And I don't know what happened to me, but the spirit of Galen Woodward rose up inside of me. The spirit of my dad, and I think I blacked out for a moment. And I looked back at my son right in his two-year-old eyes and I said, Carson, we do not say hate in this house. You know, it's crazy. The very thing that annoys you about your mom and dad, you are destined to become when you become a parent. The funniest thing is to this day, if you say hate in front of my four-year-old, you will be immediately scolded, expected to apologize right on, right on the spot. And there's nothing more defeating than being morally policed by a four-year-old, if you've ever experienced that before. But we grew up not being able to say hate. But right here you have Paul telling us, he said, I want you to hate. And not people, we're never given permission in scripture to hate people. But Paul here is saying, there's something that I want you to hate and this something is evil. And he says, there's something I want you to cling to and this thing that I want you to hold fast to is good. Now before we can talk about this, I think in greater detail, we're confronted with a few questions. And those questions are these. Well, okay, we wanna talk about what is you know, hating and, and, um, and clinging to, but what is evil and what is good? And according to whom? Right, who gets to decide what is evil and, and what is good? And I don't know if you've noticed this or realized this, but in our modern society and in this cultural moment, it is becoming increasingly more difficult to answer these questions. 
right? We're living in a time and in an age that many are calling the age of moral relativism, right? The, this is kind of the age of his truth, her truth, your truth, and my truth, and everybody is running as fast as they can away from any concept of a truth or the truth. We live in an age of moral relativism, and we did not arrive here quickly as a society. This has been something that's been taking place as a result of unchecked ideas for the last thousand years. It's been picking up steam over the last 300 years, and then really, really picking up steam in our modern Western society in the last few decades. And so I can't take you on a thousand year deep dive, but I do wanna do a little bit of a deep dive for a second. So I'm gonna invite you to come to school with me for about seven minutes. Can we do that together? Okay, is that fine? All right, get on the bus, let's go. Okay, so where a lot of this stems from recently, I was just reading about this uh, in an incredible book, and what the author talked about was most recently, this goes back to Darwinian materialism. So Darwin steps on the scene, Darwinism comes uh, into full fruition, he's, he's teaching this, he's sharing his writings, and really this began to become accepted and embraced by a lot of our modern society. And where we've landed as a result of Darwinian materialism is things like this, that within our societal framework, there is no more creator or creation. There's no sacred order to align your mind, your body, and your life to. There's no loving God. There's no design. There's a, a full loss of purpose. Or that one thing that we share collectively as a human species, that we just have this sense that there's something greater out there, we begin to lose our sense of purpose. And ultimately what it becomes is the survival of the fittest and the propagation of our species. That's what life is. But if you were to ask somebody that ascribes to these kinds of things, well, what is the purpose of life? Well, they have to tell you, really, there's not a real purpose to it. We're just here. So while we're here, we may as well just try to help the human race just to continue. And that is ultimately the purpose of life. So really, based on these ideals, there is no transcendent truth that reigns above it all, and there's no baseline of morality that becomes the, the bedrock and the framework for us to ascribe to. It's just people and cultures trying to figure things out on their own and just trying to find a way to continue on. So then, here's the deal. If, if there's no external thing or being that's telling us what is right and what is wrong, then what are eight billion people on this earth left to conclude? But what you're gonna find is eight billion people saying something like this. If there's no external being telling me what is right and wrong, then I will just decide for myself. And this is the time that we're living in. I'll just, okay, I'll just decide for me. Now the problem with this is that, is that um, this materialism, this moral, or sorry, this moral relativism is the first step to a kind of moral anarchy. I'll illustrate it like this. Um, how many of you guys love board games? Any board games, people in the house? Does anybody here love doing family game night? You know, let's just bring the family together over board games. I've never seen a family come together over board games. I've only ever seen families be torn apart from the inside out. I'll never get why people do that to bring the family together. I'm like, maybe if your family is overly unified, then you could play a board game and we could split, you know, split up a little bit. But now imagine this for a second. You're playing a board game with your family, your friends. Maybe this has happened to you before. And the rules of the game are kind of muddy and unclear. Or somebody just gets the game out quickly, starts throwing stuff together, you don't have the rule book, or they always say that same thing, like, let's just play and you'll get it as we go, and you're like, I never get it as we go, I'm lost. But the rules are muddy and unclear. What starts to happen? Well, people just start doing whatever they think is right, and the people who tend to cheat while they're playing board games, and you know who you are, they're just gonna start cheating even more, right? 
And then people are just gonna start making stuff up all along the way in this game. And they're not gonna be making things up that benefit you or the entire group. They're gonna make things up that benefit themselves and their current position in the game. And so here's what I'm getting at. When you remove the standard, you get chaos. Right, we got a lot of NFL football going on today, this afternoon. Imagine if the referees today walked out to those 22 guys on the field, 22 of the largest men on planet Earth, and said, here's the football, and hey guys, there's no rules today. Just get the football in the end zone. That field suddenly becomes a UFC octagon, and there will be blood on that field. Right, you get rid of the standard, and you invite chaos. And when you think about this, this has kind of been the problem since the very beginning. And by the very beginning, I mean like the very beginning. You go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis, and this is the moment that through the temptation of the serpent, that Adam and Eve sinned, and what took place when they sinned? Chaos entered the world, right? Everything broke. So even the brokenness that we experience today, the evil that we see all around us today, the sin that affects each of us individually, the reason Jesus had to come is a result of what happened in the garden at that moment. But have you ever thought about what the primal temptation was? The very first temptation that the enemy brought, the serpent brought to humanity was this. The primal temptation for humans was to redefine good and evil on their own terms. Essentially trying to seize autonomy from God and become their own lowercase g gods. That's what the temptation was. Did God really say, well, yeah, if we eat, we'll surely die. You're not surely going to die. The reason God doesn't want you to do this is that you will become like God if you partake of this fruit. And the same thing is still happening today. There's an attempt in our society to define morality on our own terms. That we don't want God to define what is good and what is evil. We want to define what is good and what is evil for our own lives. We want to become our own gods. And maybe that's not a conscious thought for you. Like, man, I want to be a God. But subconsciously, this is what we're doing. Anytime we push God out and we say, I make the rules, you are making yourself the God of your own life. And I don't know if you realize this, people make very poor gods, yourself included, right? So we do this to ourselves. So we are the first society, and I don't just mean America, I mean the modern Western world. This is hitting Australia, Canada, the United States, Europe, the modern world right now. We are the first society in the history of the world to attempt with no moral authority beyond the self. That is now the moral authority, you, how you think, how you feel. Pastor John Mark Homer said this. He said, in the previous era, it was thought fitting to never deny God. In our era, it is thought fitting to never deny yourself. This is where we are. And I think the deeper you look under the layers of this, you begin to realize how strategic the enemy has been over the last 300 years. Because you begin to realize that if, if the enemy can get a society of people to become so obsessed with themselves, then why in the world would we ever dream that we would ever deny ourselves? And what this does is, what the enemy's doing is he's fracturing the fundamental call of Jesus toward his followers. Do you remember what that call was? If anybody would come after me, if anybody would follow me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. But how in the world are you gonna deny yourself if you become obsessed with yourself? How are you gonna deny yourself if you have become your overall overarching moral sense of authority for your life? So we're not gonna deny ourselves the more we become occupied by ourselves. 
So as we wrap up this, this somewhat quick uh, lesson on moral relativism, the conclusion is simply this. As Christians, which is most of us in this room, and I know not everybody in this room is a believer, but most of us sitting in this space right now as Christians, we are not moral relativists. Morality is not relative. It is not what you choose that it is. It is not what you think that it is. Morality comes from the word of God. We don't find these ideas. We don't find truths about God from within ourselves, and we don't find it from any external influence other than the word of God. That is where our morality comes from, and that is where our truth comes from. So a couple more things on this, and then I'll move on. I see many self-proclaimed Christians today that have what I would call a world-based theology rather than a word-based theology. So theology is the, is the study of God, right? What you think of God based on what you know of God, that's your theology. It was A.W. Tozer who once said that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So your theology is of utmost importance in your life. What do you think about when you think of God? So as Christians, if we wanna gain a better and more robust theology, we wanna discover God and gain an understanding of him, how do we do that and to where do we go? Where do we look? Well, the answer's simple. We go where the, the church has gone for 2,000 years. We go to the scriptures. And out of that, what we call the word of God, out of that we build our foundation and our framework for life, and that becomes our worldview. Right, the scripture is what's leading every piece of our worldview, and so basically what that means is our word-based theology then becomes the lens through which we see the world. This is how we're supposed to live. And I love this, you see the Bible as a lens. Scripture also tells us the Bible is like a scalpel. Right, sharper than any double-edged sword, it, sharp enough to pierce between soul and spirit, can cut you open and show what's really inside. The Bible, James says, is also like a mirror, that when you look into it, it doesn't just reflect what you think you are, it shows you who you really are. I heard a pastor say one time, the Bible is the only book that while you read it, it reads you. This is why we open the scriptures, and the scripture also becomes our lens. It's like putting goggles on. This is what we're seeing through. Not the values of culture, but the values of the word. This is where we go. So the problem, though, right now is that there's many self-proclaiming Christians, and this is the problem. It's becoming more and more confusing to be like, is that a Christian or is that a Christian? And, and let me try to set the record straight for a moment. Many self-proclaiming Christians who are reversing this, and what we're doing is we're going to the world and to society and to culture first. And what we're doing is we're learning what it values and what it deems to be moral and good and right, and then we apply that to scripture and to our vision of God. So essentially what we're doing is we're not allowing God to define the things around us, we are allowing the things around us to begin to define God. And at that moment, please hear me when I say this, at that moment, you are no longer following the creator God, but a created God that, uh, that looks and thinks a lot more like you than you would ever like to admit. This is the God that we're serving. And in a roundabout way, we come all the way back to what we said a moment ago. This God we're serving is not really God. It's just ourselves in disguise. We're caught up in this. It's a world-based theology, and it's found its way into the church. It's found its way into TikTok theology. You hear this a lot. If you get your theology from TikTok, you're in real trouble, okay? Don't do this. It's not, it's not like, there's like there's some good info out there. It's not a lot on there, okay? But as believers... I want us to decide that we are unwavering in our commitment to scripture and to the teachings of Jesus. Let me say it like this. We take our cues from Christ, not culture. 
That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Doesn't mean you can't love the world and love people in the culture. But as Jesus said, you are, yes, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. Yet you are called to the world. It's a strange dichotomy we've got to figure out. I think the separation Jesus talks about is not a spatial separation from the world, but a spiritual separation. Saying, I will not embrace the idols of our culture. Romans 12, 9, let's go back to it for a second. Paul says, so hate, what is evil? Cling to what is good. Now, I haven't really defined in detail what evil is and what good is, but I'm giving you the ability to do it yourself, to go to the word. The word will show you what is truly evil and the word will show you what is truly good. And then Paul says, then I want you to do is I want you to hate the things that are evil and cling and hold fast to the things that are good. Basically, what Paul is saying here, and I'll, I'll bring clarity to this in a moment, is that he's wanting us to divorce evil and come into a marriage with what is good, a covenantal relationship with what is good. And we know this based on the language that Paul uses. The word that he uses for cling, when he says cling to what is good, is the same word that Jesus used in speaking of marriage when he said that a man will leave his father and mother and will cleave to his wife. He will be united to his wife. And so Paul here is kind of trying to show us a little bit of something deeper below the surface. He's saying, I don't want you just to hold on to the things that are good. I don't, I don't want you to just hold on to the Lord. I want you to come into a covenantal marriage relationship with things that are good. That's how deep this is supposed to go. Saying, I will divorce the ways of the world to come into a covenantal relationship with the ways of God. So really, if I can do this, if I can take these nine words in Romans, hate what is evil and cling to what is good, and I can sum them all up into this, I would say that what Paul is doing is he's calling us to a life of holiness. Paul's saying this is about holiness. I know that may seem like a medieval word. Like, I don't know if I, I don't use that word a whole lot, maybe in your life and but let me show you what holy is. It's a beautiful word and a beautiful concept. Holy, we get from the word hagios. And what it means is it means to be set apart. Everybody one time together say set apart. It means to be set apart. It's unique difference or other. One commentary said holiness for the believer means likeness of nature with the Lord and therefore different from the world. That's one of the best definitions I've ever heard. You wanna know what it means to be holy? You're becoming more like Jesus and less like the world. What I also love about this is holiness doesn't mean better than, it just means different than. And the moment that you start thinking that holiness is gonna make you better than, like somebody else or other believers, is the moment you become like a Pharisee. And these are the, the one group of people in scripture, the primary group of people that Jesus had the most issue with, right? Not because they had zeal for the word, they had a lot of zeal for the word, they wanted to do the right things, but their holiness made them feel they were better than others. Holiness is not better than, it's different than. It means to be set apart, set aside for a specific or unique purpose. Now to drive this home a little further, I think this will help bring even more clarity. In the old covenant in the temple, in the Old Testament, in the temple they had all kinds of holy activities. People had to wash before going in, but in the temple they had holy objects, holy candlesticks, holy pots and pans. Now our definition of holy is like that I'm just, I'm amazing and I've, I'm becoming this like super Christian, but how does that work in regard to pots and pans? Right, are these pots and pans that we're just making more, you know, greater moral decisions than the other pots and pans? And so they're like, these are holy pots and pans. No, basically here's all it meant. That really, this is gonna help you for a second. All it meant was that the priest, the Levite, went and grabbed a couple of pots and pans from the pile, and he said, we're gonna use these in the temple for the purposes of God. So he took them and he set them apart 
and he set them aside in the temple to be used for the glory and the purposes of God. That's what it means to be holy. Simply that you are being set apart or separated from the world and set aside, not to be forgotten, but to be used for the glory of God. So if you wanna be holy, all you say is, God, I'm gonna divorce the ways of the world, set myself apart, and set myself in position to be used by you. That's holiness. Are you set apart for the purposes of God? And now here's the rub, church. There's so many people who are desperate to be used by God, but the problem is this. Many Christians are saved, but they're not set apart. And you wonder why you're not being used. You're like, man, I just, I'm around the things of God. And I'm in this church and I hear about you know, God wanting to use people for great things and God showing up in people's lives. What is it about me where I'm not, I don't feel like I'm receiving a word from God. I don't feel like I'm receiving a calling from the Lord. Perhaps, maybe, it's that you're saved, but you've not been set apart. And so those same things that you were, you were in, those same worldviews and ideals that you had before Christ, you've tried to hold on to after coming to Christ. Man, what a life of tension that creates. You want a life of misery in Christianity? Try to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the door of the kingdom. It's a miserable existence. And this is where a lot of Christians live, and we wonder why our faith feels powerless. We've got to be set apart. You know, one of the most perplexing things for me right now is that if you look at statistics, the Barner Research Group, alongside Pew Research, did this massive study where they asked Christians and non-Christians alike, and they said, uh, they asked them about different categories of life, and just wanted to rate people, their ways of thinking in, in these categories. These are categories like anxiety. What are your levels of anxiety, depression, sex outside of a marriage covenant, just our overall sexual ethic? What do people think about sexuality in general? Addictions the accumulation of debt, as well as divorce rates. And what this study found was remarkably disheartening because what it showed was that the statistics of Christians and non-Christians are very similar in almost every single one of these categories. Would you agree that's a problem? That we're presenting and preaching about this faith that says if you come to Christ, you are a new creation. That in Christ, you can be set free from addictions. In Christ, you can, you can know, like let's just get practical, you can know how to use your money better where you're not drowning in debt like the rest of the world, right? And, and we're called to live in this different way. We're invited to live in this different way, yet we're living very similarly to the rest of the world. And I firmly believe this is happening, not because faith in Jesus just doesn't work, but because rather than living separated, a lot of Christians are still living integrated. We have so intertwined our lives into the things of the world that we begin to look more like the world than we do like Christ. See, modern Christianity, I think, can almost be defined in many ways. And again, I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about a, a culture that's kind of taken over Christianity in our country. But much of modern Christianity can be defined by being the values and the ways of the world with a twist of Christianity, just a twist of Jesus. You know, um, I've known my in-laws now for 12 years. Um, coming up on this January, I'm gonna hit 10 years of marriage, which is just crazy, kind of mind-blowing. I know, we're making it. That's an eternity in, in Hollywood marriages, so we're doing great. And um, so I've been in this family now for about 12 years, though, as I was dating my wife. And I remember when I was dating her, I was over at their house on a Sunday afternoon, and my in-laws, they do um, what they do almost every Sunday during football season. After church, they go home, they order Dion's pizza, and they watch football, which is one of the most godly and spiritual things you can do. 
you want to be godly today, go, go home, get some pizza, watch football. And so uh, my, my father-in-law, knowing that I'm just the, you know, the boyfriend that will do anything to impress the family, he takes out the credit card, says, hey, I ordered pizza, I need you to go pick it up. And I'm like, yes, captain, what else do you need? So he sent me out, and on my way out the door, he said, hey, I forgot to order my drink. He said, would you, would you go and ask them to give me a large Diet Coke with just a shot of Dr. Pepper? I think he could tell that I was looking at him real weird for a second. And uh, and I'll never forget how he followed up. He said, you know, I do that because I just want to have a taste of the good stuff. Now, I was using, my father-in-law was here in the 830. I'm using him kind of as a negative illustration. It's dangerous ground to be walking on as a preacher and a son-in-law. That's okay to do when it comes to your soda choices, okay? I'm not here to knock on how you drink your soda. If you want a a taste of Dr. Pepper, that's fine. I just would say the Dr. Pepper is better in general, so just drink that instead. But I think this is what a lot of Christians do in the life of faith. We fill ourselves up with the things of the world and the values of the world and the ways of our culture, so much to the point that we walk in here on Sundays and we just get a shot of Jesus or a shot of worship. We give ourselves just a taste of the good stuff. And what it does is it convinces us just because we can taste a little bit of it, we convince ourselves that we're full of it. And we're not. We're just taking a shot of Jesus on Sunday and going, okay, that's gonna carry me through the rest of the week. Please understand me, it will not carry you, nor will it sustain you. There's, no, there, there's, there's a reason that every time the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit and how he interacts with believers, it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And you cannot be filled with the Spirit if you are already filled with other things. Some of us in here are filled with the things and the ways of the world. Some of us, if we just be honest for a second, we're so full of ourselves that there's no room for the Spirit of God. So what we've gotta do is there's gotta be an emptying out of ourselves before God before we're ever gonna be filled by the things of God. So don't, don't convince yourself that because I'm getting a taste of the good stuff, that you're actually full of the good stuff. You gotta pour yourself out before God. Paul said, I'm being poured out like a drink offering before the Lord. We gotta pour ourselves out. Impartial allegiance to Christ. This is one of the most, I think, important things for you to hear right now. Impartial allegiance to Christ. We do not end up with partial results. We end up with none. And I think we have a lot of Christians who are partially following Jesus and are very confused why they're getting none of the results of the promises of Jesus. Jesus said, this is an all or nothing kind of a thing. You come to me and deny your life. You have to be somebody that says, it is better for me to lose my life for him than to gain this world. I'm gonna lose my life for his sake. And so what happens is we have this faith that promises new life and power and freedom and hope, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But it all begins to kind of feel like a sales scheme, where we make these big promises, but it always fails to deliver. And I think that this is what an unbelieving world finds so unbelievable about Christianity right now. It's people that are looking at us, and we're saying, oh, come to Jesus, he's everything, he'll change your life. And they're looking at us like, I don't think he's changed yours at all. You know, there's a verse in uh, 1 Peter 3.15 that I've always loved, and it says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. That's a great verse, right? Now, I think Peter's making an assumption here, and the assumption that Peter is making is that you're gonna live in such a distinct and unique way as a follower of Jesus that people are gonna come to you and ask you questions. That the way that you, you grieve when you experience loss, doesn't mean you can't grieve. The Bible never says don't grieve. It just says, we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. 
So the way you grieve is so unique that somebody comes to you and says, I've never seen somebody grieve with such steadiness like you do. I just don't understand it. Can you tell me what this is? Or, man, I've never seen somebody that's as generous as you are. What is it that drives this generosity in your life? I've never seen somebody that's as kind and loving as you are, even to people that can't stand them. I mean, I've never seen someone that can remain steadfast and full of hope in the midst of an election cycle like you do. Please know we're in the middle of an election. We got another real important one coming up in two years. Pray for us in DC, please. It's gonna get crazy. But you know what we're already reminding our church of almost weekly in DC? Is I don't tell people there who work in politics and government that like their job's not important. Their job is unbelievably important. But our nation, every election season is greatly shaken. But you have to remind yourself always, the kingdom of heaven is never shaken. There's a, there's a kingdom that we belong to that is not of this world. I love my American citizenship. I love this nation. I'm proud to be an American. But you know what I'm even more proud of being? It's a citizen of heaven. That is my kingdom. So I'm in, I'm in D.C. and I'm like, throw whatever you want at us. We'll take it. Because we're not of this world. We are of the kingdom of heaven. But Peter's making this assumption that you're going to live so unique and distinct that people are going to ask you questions. But can I just ask you, when was the last time somebody came asking you? And what is it that makes you so different? Why, do you, why are you so hospitable to people? Why do you give so much of your time and your life? I mean, when was the last time that somebody just came and said, tell me about this hope that you have because I see hopelessness all around me and there's something different about you. What is it? And so what's happened to 1 Peter 3.15 is that we basically have given this verse over to people who love apologetics. Now, I've got no knock on apologetics. We need smart Christians out there who know how to talk about that belief in, in faith in the Bible is not dumb. But I love people that can defend the faith, that can debate about the faith. I think it's important. But we've given this verse to people in only that context, and we fail to realize that we're ready to give an answer. Man, I'm ready to tell people about this hope that I have, but I'm afraid that we are working on the answer to a question that the world is simply not asking. Because they're not seeing a hope that we have. They're not seeing anything different about us, and so our lives are not begging the question. So I think that the challenge for us today is to begin to live in a way that begs the question. What is it about you? I think right now our greatest apologetic is not how well we reason, but how well we live. Let our lives be the beacon that people need to be drawn back into the family of God and the kingdom of God. Our lives need to stand out and be different. You see, one of the dying core realities of the Christian faith is that we are not only called to believe the gospel in our hearts, but to make the gospel visible through the quality of our lives and the quality of our churches. And I don't mean the church's property or its programs, I mean the people. That the way that we live is so distinct and different that people are drawn into the light of the church. And this is what is missing. So don't get caught up in what the world is caught up in. Remind yourself, I'm part of a different kingdom. We've gotta live set apart. I wanna close by saying this. My brother, a couple weeks ago, shared an illustration about how uh, monkeys can kind of be a nuisance all around the world, other parts of the world, and how these guys will come up and how they, how they trap monkeys, basically. He said they'll create this box, put a hole in the box and put like a shiny object in there and then tie this box off to a tree and the monkey will see the object, run up, he sticks his hand in the hole and the, hand is just the, the hole is just the right size where you can fit your hand in like this, but the second that you make a fist and grab onto that object, you can't get your hand free, it's stuck. 
And all of a sudden, the monkey will see the hunter coming up behind him, and all he would have to do is just let go. He could be free, and he could outrun that hunter, no problem. But out of stubbornness, he just holds on, keeps grabbing that shiny object until he's either captured or killed. And I thought of this, and this came back to my memory. My brother used that illustration a bunch when uh, I was in youth ministry under him, him as a youth pastor. And I think this is an incredible visual for us. The Bible says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And some of us, we make ourselves easy targets because we allow ourselves to get so caught up in what this world offers. And we're white knuckle gripping so tightly onto the things of this world. And we're allowing the enemy to wreak havoc in our lives. And I think today the invitation of the Holy Spirit is for you to let go. And not just let go and float off into space, but to let go and then hold fast to Jesus. Right, cling to what is good. Can I, can I take that a step further? Don't just cling to what is good. Cling to who is good. We cling to Jesus. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me, I will remain in them, and you will bear much fruit. Cling to Jesus over the things of the world. Some of us today, we've got to divorce and leave the world behind once and for all. And I guarantee as I'm speaking to this idea of partial allegiance to Christ and feeling very few or no results of your faith in your life, I wonder how many of you that speaks to right now. We're like, man, faith has been rough lately because I'm like, I'm here at church and I'm doing this stuff, but I'm not seeing the stuff. And maybe it's because you've continued to hold on to the stuff that Jesus told you to let go of. Hey, if anyone would follow me, Jesus said, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. I think today's a great day for us to deny ourselves. Say, Jesus isn't about me. I've been so full of me and my ideas in the ways of the world, the idols of the world, but today I wanna to pour myself out. If you guys would bow your heads, I wanna pray. And after I pray, I wanna do one more thing. I wanna to read to you a, a passage from the scripture, but I've been praying before I ever preached today. I just was asking the Holy Spirit to just be stirring and convicting hearts. That you wouldn't be thinking about other people, but just yourself. As we're talking about a cup that needs to be poured out, as we're talking about some things of this world that we need to let go of, right? We need to hate what is evil. We need to distance ourselves from things that do not look like Jesus and do not honor God. And we need to cling and hold fast to what is good and who is good. Some of you right now, I know the Holy Spirit is working. I know he's working and stirring in your heart. And he's saying, this is what you need to pour out. So what I want you to do is just in your mind, under your breath, in your spirit, I need you right now to allow the Holy Spirit to identify that thing. And I need, I need you to call that thing to attention and say, God, I'm pouring this out right now. I've been caught up in the way that culture thinks. I've been caught up in the ways of the world. I've been holding on to this thing that's not good for me. And right now, I want you to make the conscious decision through the strength of the Holy Spirit to let it go. And as you do that, I wanna imagine yourself turning from that thing and grabbing onto the hands of Christ that are already extended toward you saying, hey, come and follow me into a new life. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you right now. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come into this space. Would you stir in our hearts uniquely and individually right now? Or show us where we have been not living separated, but living integrated in the world. Show us where we are being discipled by the world more than we are being discipled by you, Christ. So right now, Lord, we repent. And we lay these things at your feet. We pour out our cup before you and say we wanna be filled 
with you, Holy Spirit. We let go of the world and we hold on to you. Like the famous hymn, we say, take the world and just give me Jesus. You're all we want, Lord. We hold fast to you. We love you, God. Stir up holiness in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And the church said together, amen. Can we give God a hand clap of praise today? I wanna finish with this. I was reading in Philippians last week and Paul just had this greeting. He loved the Philippian church so much. And he had this greeting for the Philippians and you can just see his, his love for them, his affection for them. And as I was reading it, I knew I was coming out here in a, in a matter of days. And this passage just gripped my heart for you, for this church. And I wanted to read this over to, you, over to you so that you would just have a little bit of insight as to what I think about Citizen Church, what you guys mean to me, but also I wanna read this kind of as a prayer and a blessing over this house and over you. So if you'd allow me to read this to you. And again, this is in regards to Citizen Church. As Paul says, he said, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, All of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thank you, church. I love you.